We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, I'm Cheryl Broderson, and you know this voice, and I'm really excited to bring you another episode of Women Worth Knowing, and I'm really excited about the guest I have in studio today. Let me just say a little background. Brian has been telling me, Cheryl, you have got to meet Amy or Ewing. And he's just been talking about her. She's English. She's an apologist. And he was raving. He seriously was raving. And when Brian raves, it's it's usually quality. Oh, that's so kind. Isn't Thank that? you. And so I'm so excited that you're in the United States and I could have you on this program. So Amy, I want to start a little bit today um, with a little background on how you came to know Jesus. Well, well, thank you so much for the welcome. And it is amazing to be here and be in this beautiful studio. So um, I was born in Australia. Neither of my parents were followers of Jesus. My dad had been raised um, by an atheist father who was a scientist who sort of forbade anyone from reading the Bible or mentioning God at home. And my mum had a kind of traditional British upbringing. She'd been to church a little bit, but no faith. And in their 30s, my sister and I had been born. My dad was working as a lecturer in a university in Australia. And um, my dad had a dramatic vision of Jesus. Jesus just appeared to him and kind of convicted him and he was gloriously saved. And my mum, about six months later, she had a lot of questions. So um, my parents uh, had this, I guess, revolution in their lives. My dad then went on to become a church planter and evangelist and moved back to the UK. And so I grew up in a home where undeniably Jesus had sort of broken in from outside into our lives. So I experienced that myself and saw all kinds of amazing people come to know the Lord as well. And um, I think as well, I was encouraged to to ask questions, to to study and come to a conviction myself um, and definitely experienced that as a teenager. And yeah, it's been a privilege and joy to to follow Jesus since then. Okay. Now I want to ask, how old were you when you moved from um, Australia back so to the UK. I was just UK. little. I was like three years old when, when we moved. Okay. Yeah. Now, were you in Australia like so many English transplants because you had criminals in your background? <laughs> no. No, it's as boring as my father had been working at um, the LSE, the London School of Economics, and the next job he got was at the University of New South Wales, and they thought, that sounds like a great lifestyle. Let's go and live. It's warmer, you know, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, so, that's interesting. So that was why. Yeah. When I was in Australia, um, everyone had a story, yeah. you know, about their criminal great-grandfather <laughs> exactly. or grandfather. So yeah. I was like, well, <laughs> is this how you all got your start? It's yeah. good to know that some people actually came legitimately. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Not in one of those small boats. So Amy, um, tell me a little bit about your your ministry now or you know what what you're doing and and then I want to hear about how you got into, into this. It. Yes. Yeah. So I've been working for the last 24, 25 years as a okay. theologian. Let me just say this. <laughs> if you were in studio you'd be like what? You're only 25 or 26. So I just want to give you a visual of someone who looks like she's about 26 or 27 who just said that she's been working 20 years, 25 years. You're too kind, Cheryl. No, it's true. So go ahead now. Um, So yeah, I've been, I guess, working as a theologian and an evangelist 
and writer for the last 25 years. I'm really interested in how to reach secular people. So to reach people who don't know Jesus, who perhaps don't even have an interest in religion or anything, and who have big questions and even objections to the Christian faith. And um, it's been... You know, God, the Lord has, it's been a funny path in a way. God just has opened that up for me. Um, so I, I get to go and speak in banks and in universities and churches and people bring friends who, who don't know the Lord. And, you know, we might talk about the question of suffering, the problem of pain, or can we really trust the Bible? And uh, through those questions show that God is real, that the claims of Christ are true, that Jesus was God with us in, in flesh, and that coming to know him is just the most wonderful thing. See, I really love that when we moved, we moved to England in 1996. My husband um, started a church in London. And I remember all these people in the States going, don't go there. Don't go there. Yeah. It's post-Christian. Yeah. And that really kind of put me off, not from going, but that they would kind of cancel the place out Yeah, because of, oh, it's post-Christian. It's like post-Christian is pre-Christian. They exactly. need to hear yeah. the gospel. So I, I would really, I, I totally agree with that. It's a, it's, and it's interesting coming to the States now, what I see, you know, I've been coming here for 20 years and I really see, you know, resonance of, of what we've been through in the British church. So in a sense, God has prepared us I guess to help serve you guys as you navigate you know what's coming the questions in culture and some some people really turning away from church and you know institutional religion and all of that. Uh, Yeah Yeah. I think it was Mark Sayers and and Aussie who was talking about um, the culture itself that we're living in right now uh, the western culture has a deep distrust of any institution. Absolutely yeah. And that that then reflects on the church because they see it as an institution instead of the house of the living God, exactly. you know, the pillar of truth, right? Yeah, exactly. And 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 they see and perceive, you know, misuse of power and all of that. And so we just we're in a moment now that's a real opportunity. I mm. think, um, probably similar to when Calvary Chapel began, when there was that great move of God amongst people who were sort of resisting, I guess, institutionalized living, or uh, you know, were we're asking all the right questions, and I think this generation is, is you know, on the cusp of that as well. Now, yeah. I know you studied in school. You you went to Oxford, yes, right? Which is yes. <laughs> so impressive for those of us who have visited the city. But um, how how do you, you know, find out the questions and, and receive your answers to those questions? Like, mm-hmm. how do you know what the questions are that society is asking or, or wanting to know about? Yeah, so I think if you're kind of doing evangelism, so if you're trying to invite people that, you know, you know that you have contact with to come and follow Jesus, you quite quickly discover what their questions are. And so as a young person, um, I had this, I guess, calling and maybe fire in me to reach people. And that had begun through mission trips with Youth With A Mission. I had opportunities to go into Eastern Europe and actually into Muslim countries as well as a teenager and be involved in sharing the gospel. And so in the context, I guess, of those conversations and for the reasons people would give you to not come to the event or no, I'm not interested or... (laughs) 
you know, I don't believe in Jesus because of X, Y, Z. That was that was a, a, a fruitful source of finding out the questions. And then as well, when I was studying um, at Oxford, the professors and you know the tutors and 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 whatnot were were not many not many of them were bible believing christians let's put it that way so i often found myself floundering actually you know being asked mm-hmm. a question and not knowing the answer and being thrown onto the lord and being thrown onto the need to to dig deeper and i remember saying to one professor you know, because he'd said to me, what are you going to do after three years at Oxford? You're going to, you know, all your naive little assumptions about Jesus and the Bible are all going to collapse. How are you going to cope? And I remember saying, well, you know, Jesus said that he's the truth, the way, the truth and the life. And I'm not interested in following him if that isn't real. And if it's true and if Jesus's claims are true, then they're going to stand up to, to these questions. Um, and so I sort of said that with, with confidence, not really knowing what's going to happen here. But it was my experience through those years, sometimes really hard struggles, you know, needing to read and study and go to older, wiser Christians and, and seek counsel. But it has been my experience through my adult life that the gospel does stand up to the questions of this culture, that the Bible is true and that the evidence actually supports the Christian faith rather than, you know, we we just need to sort of pretend or hope or have more faith. Actually, this is true and we can be confident. Now, Amy, do you know any other Christian women apologists and theologians? Well, I do now because one of my <laughs> one of my um, desires has been to sort of make a way for other other women. Um, but when when I was starting out, very much not. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there were a few women. There was a, a, a woman called Dr. Elaine Storkey, who was a sociologist, and mm. um, she did some apologetics. She sometimes did some stuff with with um, John Stott, um, but but not really. Mm-hmm. No. So it was it was <laughs> an interesting journey to kind of pioneer and at each life stage to keep asking God, you know, just help me now. And obviously I had the support of an amazing husband who's a pastor and leader and and my parents as well. So, yeah. You know, I think that's so exciting because, you know, you on this program, what we've done is we've highlighted women who had a call from God on Mm. their life and watched how because of the call of God, you persevere through sometimes the prejudice of of those who should be your greatest cheerleaders. And and that's hard, but I think it's that call, that mm. that certainty that I'm called yeah. to this. I think I had to, I really needed to resolve that question and, and in some ways you don't that doesn't happen all in one go. That so that's good. like a sort of um a, a journey. And I found I was often the sort of first woman to do X, Y, Z, whether it was, I don't know, speak at the Keswick Convention or lead a university mission in a particular context. Um, And so one felt not just the pressure of serving the Lord, you know, trying to reach secular, hostile people, but also the pressure of doing that as the first woman to be to be doing that. Um, and that's that's been a, a humbling thing, which is good. I think in our age where, you know, leisures are falling and 
you know, we're, we're all experiencing disappointment sometimes with the culture of the church or whatever. It's, it's good to be humble and it's good to be questioned and, you know, to, to be thrown onto God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to, to make your calling and election sure. Like, yes. this is really yeah. what the Lord has for me. Yeah. I have to ask you a more personal question. How did you meet your husband? Yes. And, and did he <laughs> recognize the call on your life even then? He recognized the call on my life before I did, oh, funnily that's enough. But we met in a prayer meeting. So spiritual. That's <laughs> so perfect. I met Brian at a home Bible study, so yeah, I exactly. totally approve. <laughs> So we were we were both students at Oxford and um, there were daily early morning prayer meetings for different parts of the world. And we met at a prayer meeting for unreached people groups for specifically China and the 1040 window that met on a Friday morning at 7 a.m. in a place called New College. And yeah, that's that's where we met. And how long did you court or or date and yeah. how long before you knew and what was it that you knew that's such <laughs> an interesting question so we met and quite quickly we became involved in planning a mission trip actually for fellow students and we went for 6 weeks to um, to China, including to the Xinjiang province, and we we had the opportunity to go into universities in in China and talk about life at Oxford, which was quite a lot of what it means to know Jesus mm-hmm. Christ as mm-hmm. well, and students practice their English. So through that, we really got to know each other, and I think we started dating maybe um, four months after meeting, something like that. And then we got married straight after after our, our, our university degree. So our 25th wedding anniversary is coming up, which oh is quite goodness. unbelievable. Yes, yeah. especially if you could see her right now. You would say, what? What in the world? That is not possible. So um, now after you get married, um, is how long before that, um, did, until you launched into kind of this pathway? Yeah, so... I would say it was it was a slow um, progression. So I was doing graduate study um, when we were first married, and um, my husband was working in the city of London in, in finance. And then he he got the call to get ordained, and so um, he he uh, became a theological student again. And um, it was it was in the midst of that sort of time where I was beginning to be invited by people to do just really small things. It mm-hmm. was, we're gathering, you know, 30 people. They're not really Christians and we'd like you to come and just give a 20 minute talk is probably even too grand a way of putting it, but then to answer people's questions mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Christian faith. And I began to be asked to do occasional things for churches whilst I was doing my graduate study. And then um, a year after that, um, I met actually Ravi Zacharias, mm-hmm. who was in um, in the UK doing some some speaking. And, you know, obviously, very sadly, he's now, um, you know, there's, there's there's been massive fallout around him. But at, at that point, he was one of the leading, I guess, Christian apologists in the world. And he um, offered me sort of financial support from his ministry and organisation to be able to launch into into ministry. And so that's how how I, I really kind of got started doing this, not just with people inviting me on, on a smaller scale, but to be actually financially supported to do it. 
That's so, so excellent. Now, when did you write your first book and what was the catalyst for the first book? So the first book, um, the catalyst actually was 9-11. So um, as university students, my husband and I had, we'd gone to China and then the following year we'd felt a call from God to go to Afghanistan and it was 1996. The Taliban had just taken about three quarters of the country. It was very, very dangerous um, and we 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 got visas to go in as as journalists. So our student newspaper sent us as the Afghanistan correspondents of of the Oxford University newspaper. Um, but the night before we left, um, I had a dream, and initially we'd been planning to just go on an intercession trip and sort of pray and see what what might open up but in the dream I saw us giving Bibles to the Taliban and so the next morning the day of our flight we were flying into a neighbouring country because you couldn't fly into the war zone Um, and then we did cross a land border but that morning we went and got Bibles in the language and just put them in our rucksacks and and went and it's it's a much longer story but essentially through the providence of God, and it really could not have been anything else, we were invited into the military headquarters of the Taliban. And we met the religion minister, the education minister, and the foreign minister. And we had these Bibles with us. And the meeting had been set up the day before. So we'd arrived, knowing we were going to meet them, had the Bible sort of hidden. I was not allowed to speak as a woman, but I took all the notes. And so it was just three of us, my husband and another friend. And we'd prepared all these questions to us, the Taliban. So it was lots of questions about why are you doing what you do? What do you believe about the Quran? You know, what, what's, what is this movement? And then at the end of two hours of questioning, they began to share the gospel wow. and we gave them the Bibles. It was it was just unreal. They all had Kalashnikovs. It was just incredible. The um, The keeper of the Holy Quran, the religion minister, took the Bible and he said... I know exactly what this book is. I've been praying to God for years that I could read the Bible. Thank you for bringing it. I'm going to read it every day. It was just, it was mind-blowing to us as Christian young people that God had been preparing someone's heart and had sort of moved us to go. And it was, it was... It and was, given you the, the dream. Yeah, given the dream and just the timing, all the transport. I mean, we were travelling through a war zone. We were protected. We got out again. So... At this point, 1996, basically no one really knew who the Taliban were. It was just a God thing that he had led us to it. So then 9-11 happens and suddenly everyone's like, who are the Taliban? Mm -hmm. So I had written a 10,000 word paper for my theology degree on the specific Islamic theology of the Taliban based um, based on these transcripts of the interviews. And so a publisher said, we'd really love you to, to write that up as a book. And that book, it was called Holy Warriors. Um, that was the first book. My husband and I wrote it together. And actually, the Lord then used that to open the way to other opportunities. So the first time I was invited to speak at the White House was in the West Wing. And it was partly because one of 
Bush's advisors had read that book and they were interested in, you know, any kind of source of information, I guess, on on that subject. And I got to speak evangelistically there. And yeah, so the Lord opened the way, you know, who would have thought that that would be significant? But in so many ways, it was life changing because I experienced as a 19 year old, there is no one on the face of this earth that is outside the reach of our God. You know, if you were to think of who would be the most impossible person to reach in 1996, you might have thought, you know, in the top five would be the religion minister for the most Islamic kind of crazy (laughs) movement the world had yet seen at that point. Yet there was someone who was praying for a Bible. Yeah, so it completely changed how I saw... what it means for someone to be hostile that often people expressing hostility against God you know sometimes there's something happening there that that the the spirit is actually moving and of of course we know the story of the apostle Paul you know you wouldn't have looked at him as very likely new Christian but to experience that myself as a night I was 19 when we did that trip it really changed my life because it just expanded my view of who Jesus is and you know who Jesus can reach in this world I've asked the Lord help me to get past their rhetoric and what I you know and the labels and to see the soul because God's looking at the soul yeah. and, you know, he saw the soul of that religious yeah. leader yeah. and knew the longings, the deep longings. And I've often asked the Lord that in, in my own prayer. So now how many books have you written? Um, so that is a good question. I have written. I heard several. Um, yes, it's several. <laughs> so I've, I've kind of written a few together. So I've written, I think, four with other people and three on my own. Mm-hmm. And yeah. which one, like, say someone was just going to read um, one just to get introduced. Which one's your favorite so far? Maybe favorite re- uh, the material yeah. or writing it? or So the, the one that's the kind of bestseller is called Why Trust the Bible. And I wrote that. I've just updated it. I've completely renewed it because I wrote it in 2005 because I noticed that um, seekers and, you know, what you might call ex-Christians, people who are sort of falling away from the faith, had big questions about the Bible, but they weren't the questions apologists were answering. So Mm -hmm. we were kind of focused on numbers of manuscripts and, you know, your sort of typical Bible apologetics, all of which is brilliant. But back then, you know, people were asking, isn't the Bible outdated on sex and sexuality? You know, why is the Bible any better than the Quran or the Hindu Vedas? Who are you to say the Bible is true? Or things like, how could a loving God command war in the Old Testament and the Bible be, you know, true kind of thing? So I wrote this book. It's 10 questions that I found people were really asking about about the Bible and um, that it was really meaningful to me because those questions mattered. I'd seen so many people stumble and not be able to come to Jesus because of those questions and having one of those resolved being a pathway for people to be able to meet the Lord. So it's probably that one. I I love that too because um, 10 is not an unmanageable number. Yes, exactly. And also the book, you could just read one chapter. It, the, each chapter stands alone. So mm-hmm. 
I, do, I sort of wrote it for people who aren't big readers necessarily, although it, it does try to go deep. But if you can hang in there with one chapter, the one that matters to you, that your daughter or grandchild or spouse is asking, you know, then then the, the book has done its job. Now, I, I heard you on, um, you had done Expositors Collective with a good friend, Mike Negley, which is another podcast that I love. But in that, I you talked about how your first public speaking um, (laughs) situation, and I'd love for you to share that. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier in this interview that um, I had the joy of um, being involved with Youth With A Mission as a teenager, and so the the thing, it was called King's Kids, so it was like school-age young people going on mission trips, and when I was 15, um, the mission trip that I was sort of selected for was to go to Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. And um, after being selected and after they'd begun to set up the mission trip, the Berlin Wall fell and the whole of Eastern Europe obviously changed and was just open in the most incredible way. So we found ourselves on the streets of Prague the summer after that just massive change in Europe. And there was this huge spiritual hunger, people who'd been raised in communism. So we were doing performing arts, which I slightly cringe to think of because I'm really not a very good dancer. I'm not too bad at singing, but we, we, we kind of had these shows and then there'd be small little gospel messages between, you know, one of the, one of the pieces, if you like. And... Usually the leaders did the pieces or the older young people, like maybe 17 or 18. And we're in Wenceslas Square, which is this stunning, beautiful square in the middle of Prague. And we've probably, there's probably a thousand, maybe more, maybe two thousand. I mean, a big crowd. And um, one of the leaders says to me, I think God is saying, you should speak. And you're 15. I'm 15. I've never given a talk. I don't think I've seen a woman give a talk. Um, it's 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 obviously got to be short, so I thought probably could manage it. Um, and, you know, I was obviously incredibly nervous, but the Spirit of God was moving in the most phenomenal way. And I just spoke for probably three or four minutes, and then we went as a team into the crowd, essentially to lead people to Jesus. And we were given the language, the local language. So three or four of us were just speaking and were able to speak in the, you know, okay. we hardly knew what we were saying. It That's was just... like an axe, a <laughs> biblical axe exactly. experience. Yes. I, know, I don't love. really talk about that very much because people might think how, how odd or maybe not believe it, but it was... It was just again mind blowing, and what it, it it it's it's been very significant for me to kind of reflect back on that. Number one, a leader who sees another person and gives them an opportunity and encourages them and creates a space for them to do that. And then number two, you know what Paul says: in our weakness, then we're strong. So, in apologetics, you know it, it's important that we have doctorates and. You know, people often introduce you with all your accomplishments and achievements, and I think that's very dangerous mm-hmm. because the heart of the gospel is is not about us. So I often just remember that 15-year-old young person who had no training, you know, very little ability and no model, but actually it was God who moved. And so I hope that I can be a leader like that and give opportunities to to young women as well as young men um, 
today, but also, you know, hold on to that model that it's when we're weak that, that then we're strong because it's it's Christ in us. You know, I love that because, as you said, you've been doing this now 20 Four years. 24 yeah. years, and, and you're going back to Christ being your sufficiency. Because I think sometimes people get put off by the term apologetic, yes, and they think absolutely. they have to be, you know, genius level. Yeah, or they think it means apologizing. Right, right. Well, that's even more dangerous. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. But yeah. um, the idea of, you know, having to know, because we think of numbers and dates, as you said, people tend to think of manuscripts and um, transmission. Kind of facts that and you need facts, to be able right, to call dates. to mind. Exactly. And archaeological digs and, you know, there were Hittites (laughs) and, you know, all these um, different type of, um, as you said, facts. And here it is. It's really about the anointing of the Holy Spirit Mm. and about the calling of God. And about persuasion. So the New Testament word apologetics is from the Greek word apologia and it it comes in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope. But other than that, in, in the sort of Greco-Roman world, that is the word that a lawyer w- would would use to describe what they might do when trying to persuade a jury of your innocence or, or someone's guilt. So essentially it just means persuasive evangelism, evangelism that connects with people, evangelism that where people's questions and hurts and experiences matter and you don't just kind of steamroll people and you know declare truth but you speak in a way that wins people that persuades and I think we can all do that Um, and we can all grow in that as well so I totally agree apologetics is you know it's it's not a great word (laughs) because it's very off-putting yeah um, so if someone wanted to get in touch or maybe hear one of your messages, or how would they do that? So I have a website, www.amyor-newing.com, and you can um, get in touch with me there. And I've also got, I'm quite active on Instagram, so my handle is at amyorewing without the hyphen. So you, you'll be able to connect through in either of those two ways. And we'll we'll put those up on um, our website too. We'll post those for you. And again, if you want to get um, those and see some of the books, we'll also put those up on um, Women Worth Knowing. So you can um, see those too. So you can um, hear Amy. You can read some of these books. Um, we're out of time for today. That was so exciting. But again, if you want more information on this, you can always just write into graciouswords.com and get the link WWK. And again, we'll have um, Amy, the spelling of her name. How do you spell Amy? A-M? A-M-Y. Perfect. And U-N-E-W? <laughs> E-W-I-N-G. Perfect. Just an or with two R's. Yes, exactly. We've <laughs> so done we've it. we've got this, yes. <laughs> so again, if, if you're unsure about that spelling or you're you're hitting the repeat, wait, go back, go back. You can go to um, WWK at Women. A women worth knowing at graciouswords.com and get that same information. We'll list the books that she's written to because we don't want you to lose out on any of this. And we want to thank you again, Amy, for being the guest thank today. You. I'm so excited about this field that the Lord has led you in and that you're a woman thank because sometimes you. people don't listen to a man, but yes. the Lord will use a woman and I love it. So thank you again. Um, and for those of you, we're coming back next week uh, with um, 
Jasmine's going to be here in studio. And remember, she's moving to Montana, so you want to get as much Jasmine in as possible. And until then, this is Cheryl Broderson and Amy in studio saying God bless you and hope to hear you or have you hear me next week. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.